But there's a special girl here. Stand up. Her name is E. And she's a student in Bloemfontein. She's visiting us today for the first time. And she's going to pray for Michelle. She's going to pray that our father in Mandarin. Beautiful. So just close your eyes and open up your hearts. And may our father speak to you. Through a girl from Bloemfontein just being willing and saying yes to Jesus. Thank you, E. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Woman Amen. Thank you, E. Sit down. Thank you, Michelle. Bless you. Sure. I need a tissue. Thank you. Thank you, E, for being gracious in allowing us to spring that upon you. Um, throwing in the deep end there. My husband loves to do that. So thank you for graciously responding. And that was um, so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. So if you haven't been here for a while, um, or if you're visiting for the first time, we are busy with a series in the book of Colossians, or Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And before we get started, let's quickly just recap on the context of this letter. It's always important to understand the context uh, if you are going to understand a particular book or a letter in the Bible. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church in the ancient city of Colossae. And he hadn't met them. Paul didn't establish this church like he did the church in Ephesus or the church in, in Corinth. So he hadn't met them. Uh, it, it's likely that Epaphras planted this church. But right in the beginning of Paul's letter, he commends the believers for their faith in Jesus and how the gospel is growing and how it is producing fruit among them. And so these Colossian believers were faithful and they were fruitful followers of Jesus. But Paul had heard that there were some philosophies and some false teaching which was creeping into the Colossian church. And those who followed these false teachings were basically saying that what Jesus had done on the cross was not enough and that they had to do something extra. They needed extra ceremonies, they needed extra practices, they needed some extra laws in order to really be saved, like, like observing, you know, restricting certain foods. Others were also saying that angels could be worshipped. And the people who were promoting these false teachings and practices were judging and condemning the believers for following the practices and teachings of Jesus faithfully. And so Paul's desire in writing this letter was for these believers to carry on being faithful and fruitful, like he had heard they were. So he writes this letter to warn them because he's deeply, deeply concerned for them. Because a lot of these arguments that they were hearing sounded very reasonable 
and they were very persuasive and they were very appealing. And so Paul is concerned. And this letter is still warning us as believers today. It's almost like those oncoming cars when they flash their lights at you, you know, on the way down to Durban. We all know what that means. Either you, your lights are on bright or there's a trap up ahead. And so this letter is almost like Paul flashing his lights at us saying, there's a trap up ahead. And as soon as you know that, you're able to correct so that you don't get trapped. But even though Paul is mentioning what the threats are in his letter, he's not focusing on them. His focus is on something much more important and actually someone more important. And that someone is Jesus Christ. That is the focus of Paul's letter because Paul knew that if the Colossian believers knew Christ and they grasped his greatness and the significance of what he had done and what it actually meant to, to live in Christ, to be in Christ, they wouldn't desire anything or anyone else and they wouldn't get distracted and they will not be deceived. So as an illustration, I read a, a blog post recently from a, a guy in Canada, Christian guy, and um, every time he, he, not every time, but often when he would hear a Christian author or a pastor speak about discernment, they would use this illustration of how people are trained to spot fake money, fake currency. And so he decided, being the curious guy that he was, that he was going to go off and find out about this himself. And so he made an appointment with the Bank of Canada, and off he went to see how they are trained. And interestingly, he discovered that people are trained to identify fake notes by studying and knowing real notes well. And so in knowing what a real note really is, they can very easily spot a fake note. So they don't become experts in counterfeit notes, they become experts in genuine, real banknotes. And so there are specific qualities or features of a genuine banknote, and they become familiar, very familiar, with these characteristics. So I was also curious um, about, I didn't make an appointment with the Reserve Bank, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about our South African rond. My grandfather used to always say rond. And uh, so I found information on their website about, about our, our own currency. So hopefully an alarm bell doesn't go off in cyberspace somewhere and the hawks come knocking at my door <laughs> and wondering why I'm so interested in the difference between fake banknotes and real banknotes, but I'm sure they're busier with much more important <laughs> things. So our banknotes have got certain features or characteristics about them. The type of paper that they are printed on, for example, is a cotton-based paper. And just interesting, because I like fun facts like this, they do a lot of testing with the notes to in, in washing machines. So they see how they hold up. And if a new detergent comes out, then they test it with that detergent to see, to see how durable it really is, because obviously they know people wash their money a lot. Gives a new meaning to money laundering, huh? 
And so, I didn't have that in my note. Um, <clears throat> so, our notes have got that metallic security thread that runs through it. We know about the watermark, the raised printing for the visually impaired, and then it's got this special color changing ink, which I didn't know about. And as you are more familiar with the characteristics of a real banknote, you are less likely to be deceived by fake banknotes. And all, what's my point? Because you probably think I didn't come to church to learn about the difference between fake banknotes and real banknotes. Well, I hope you didn't, but um, <laughs> all through this letter to the Colossians, Paul is teaching us, us and them about the unique characteristics of Jesus. And especially, and this is his focus, Jesus is supreme. In other words, Jesus is above all. He's above anything and he is above anyone. And Paul is telling the Colossians who Jesus really is so that they would easily spot any misrepresentation of him. Because if we know the real Jesus, and that's where our focus is, we won't be easily deceived by anyone or anything. And so this morning, I'd like to just explore a little bit of what Paul is teaching us in his letter this morning that was specifically to address the false teachings um, of the time. And so let's really allow, what Paul says in this letter is profound. And I remember um, Bert Watson, some of you, some of you know Bert Watson. He did a course on Colossians once, and he said, if we really believe what is written in this book, it will change our lives. And I really trust this morning that we will not only allow this to be inform information, but that the Holy Spirit would transform us through his word today. So I just want to pray for us before we get into, into God's word. Holy Spirit, we need you. Only you know where we are all at, what is happening in each of our lives, what we are struggling with. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your word to us today, that, that it would transform us, that it would form us more into the likeness of Jesus, that we would also be faithful and fruitful followers. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And here, Paul is taking the Colossians back to basics. As I said, he's highlighting the greatness of Jesus, and he is expanding on the pure gospel of Jesus. So in other words, the person and the work of Jesus. So chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so this points to Jesus as the creator above all creation. 
So what was happening in the church at the time is some people were worshipping angels, which are created beings. And so Paul very specifically tries to point out Jesus is above. He is creator. He's above any created thing. Verse 17, he is before all things. So not only is he above all things, he's before all things. He existed before anything was created. And in, in him, all things hold together. He literally holds the world in his hands. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So Paul's trying to illustrate that in church, if there are any teachings that do not place Jesus in his rightful position as the head of the church, those teachings are false. And these false teachers were trying to minimize Jesus and what he had done on the cross. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. And what this means is he was the first to rise from the dead and never die again. So Lazarus got resurrected from the dead, but he, he rose to that same life on earth and then he died again. At some point, Lazarus died again. Jesus is the first to rise and never die again. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. So he's first in everything. He's first in the visible world. He's first in the invisible world. And he's first in the church. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul is saying Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so as God the Son, fully human, and fully divine. Jesus was the only one who could restore the relationship with God the Father that had been ruined in the Garden of Eden by sin. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And this points to sinful man who is separated from a holy God. But, verse 22, usually buts are not great. When someone says something, they're like, but, but this is a good one. 22, but now he has reconciled you. You are in a right relationship with God by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so Jesus, who was fully human and fully divine, died willingly on our behalf and he took the punishment we deserved, and he settled the debt for our sins that we owed, but now we are declared holy and blameless in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done. Paul's trying to point to the, to the, the wonder, the wonder of Jesus. Verse 23, if, so there was a but, now there's an if, it says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And this may sound like a condition, but it's not. Paul's not saying that you earn your salvation through perseverance. He's saying that when you persevere in your faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
that proves that you are saved. And so in this passage, Paul describes the characteristics of the real Jesus and what he has done. He points to his greatness and he points out what the gospel is. And so when you focus on the real, it's very easy to spot the fake. And Paul wants the Colossians to be fully aware of this and he wants them to be fully assured of it. Why? He tells us in Colossians 2 verse 4, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And the arguments that were being used, as I've said at Paul's time, were persuasive. They, wo- they weren't so ridiculous that you would notice them. They're persuasive, they're reasonable, they're well-crafted, but they minimize the power and the position of Christ. And nothing much has changed 2,000 years later because we still have well-crafted arguments today that deny the position and the power of Jesus. And I'd like to describe one of those well-crafted teachings or belief systems to you. And so this isn't a new teaching. It's been around for about 1,300 years, but it's still practiced very widely today. And this teaching has um, taken biblical concepts and it's twisted them into lies. And so here is, is how one PhD scholar of this particular belief system described this teaching. So according, this is not Christianity that I'm describing. This is a belief system that takes biblical concepts and twists them. So according to this belief system, there is no such thing as original sin, okay? In other words, they believe that as a human you can commit sin, like Adam and Eve did, um, but you don't have a sinful nature. So no sinful nature, only sinful acts. And because sinful acts are committed by a person, that person is solely responsible for those sins. So you can't inherit sin from someone else. So there goes the inherited sin nature from Adam and Eve. They also believe that you cannot bear the sin of another person. So there goes, there goes Jesus' work on the cross. They believe that because each person is responsible for their own sin, they have the power and the potential and indeed the responsibility for their own sin. And the way that you deal with your sin is you worship God and you do good deeds. That's how you deal with your sin. That's what they believe. So things like praying and fasting and giving to charity can make you right with God when you sin. As long as you turn your thoughts to God and you are very sorry for what you've done, you will receive forgiveness quickly. And if you accept guidance to stop sinning, then you can be right with God and you can have peace. So basically, you must be your own savior. And so there goes the need for a savior. But at the end of the day, after all of that, they believe that God is the only one who decides someone's destiny. And so all you can do is try your best and hope that God is pleased with your good deeds and your devotion to him. And that on the day of judgment, your 
your good deeds will outweigh your evil deeds. So can you see how this belief system has taken biblical concepts and corrupted them? So there's just enough in there that you're like, hmm, I'm not, what's, I'm not sure about that. So who of you know which religion I've just described? Colin. Hmm, similar. Tarun. Islam. So that is what Muslims believe. Um, yeah, we... We're not going to take it. <laughs> who's, I know whose phone that is. Who's, it's Jenny. Jenny, that's your phone, my friend. I recognize the ringtone. <laughs> but listen, I didn't plan that, I promise. That happened at like the perfect time. Thank you, because my watch was saying to me just now, your stress levels are high. So thank you for that, Jenny. <laughs> So these are the beliefs of Islam, and the God that I refer to in that description is Allah. And this is what their prophet Muhammad taught, and this is what is found in the Quran. And so although Islam believes, believes some truths about Jesus, they believe in the virgin birth, they believe in the miracles of Jesus, but they deny the foundational truths about him. They deny that he's divine, they deny that he's the son of God, they deny that he's sovereign, they deny that he's supreme, and they deny that he's the only savior. And Islam currently has two billion followers. That's almost 25% of world population. It's a quarter of world population believes and follows these teachings. And so that's just one example. Colin was mentioning um, Catholicism. You know, if, if you really look at it, you have to compare what the word of God says against man-made traditions. You have to weigh it up, and that's what Paul's saying. Look at Jesus. Don't worry about that. Look at Jesus. Focus on him, and you will easily see all the other stuff. And so can we see why Paul is warning these Colossian believers and why he's warning us today? Because deception has a devastating impact. It has a devastating impact. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you want to get to the Father, Jesus is the way. But if you don't accept this truth, and you don't live in this truth, you will be deceived by fine-sounding arguments that are persuasive, that are reasonable, that are very well-crafted. But unfortunately, what lands up happening is that as Christians, we are the ones who are accused of being deceived. But like Paul encouraged the Colossians, he's encouraging us today. And you can go and read Colossians 2.16. But basically what Paul is saying there is Jesus is supreme. Nothing you can do can add to his work. It is a complete work and you are complete in him and because of that you can't allow others to judge you for your biblical beliefs and you cannot allow others to judge you for your your behavior that is biblically sound that's based on the word of God he's saying don't allow them to judge you even if they say 
that their human ideas are superior and they have special knowledge. And so in closing this morning, what is it that we should do? And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is ever faithful. And he's got advice for us in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, as Lord, ruler above all, as you've received him as Lord, continue to live your lives, what? In him. Say in him. In him. Rooted and built up where? In him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. For what? What are we thankful for? We are deeply grateful for Jesus, for who he is. And we are deeply, deeply grateful for what he has done. And so may we too be faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. 